Well, as you were hearing that story this morning, it was kind of a long scripture reading, I know, but uh, were there any characters that stuck out to you? This doesn't have a right or wrong answer, by the way, although there's an answer I'm looking for, and I'll thank you when we get there. But is there, was there any character that stuck out to you, and you thought, wow, that's really interesting? The tax collector, well, that was from the previous story a little while ago, right? The tax collector at the temple. Yeah. Who else? The Pharisees. Yeah, there were believers from the party of the Pharisees. And if you've read through the Gospels before, through the stories of Jesus' life, you'll know that Jesus and the Pharisees, they loved to argue, right? Because they constantly, actually, the reason that they argued so much is that they were alike in so many different ways. The Pharisees actually took the law seriously. They actually took God's promises seriously. And Jesus actually took the law seriously and took God's promises seriously. Whereas a lot of other people in ancient Israel didn't. They said, well, this must all be a great metaphor. Or, you know, God's really not going to do these things. Or maybe God actually loves the Romans more than he loves that. You know, all of these different questions. But Jesus and the Pharisees had all these similarities which became flashpoints. Points of contention among them. You know, do you find this to be true sometimes in your own life where the people you disagree with most strongly are actually sometimes the people closest to you? Or have you ever, maybe, uh, I remember parents say this all the time, right? The reason that your mom and daughter or father and son fight so much is because they're just like each other. You heard that one? There's definitely some truth to that with Jesus And the Pharisees, they had agreement in so many places, which made their places of disagreement all the sharper, all the more difficult. And we find that the Pharisees, they appear again here, don't they? You know what I find so interesting about the Pharisees in this passage? The the believers, the people who had believed in Jesus, but they'd come out of the life of being a Pharisee. They'd come out of believing as being a Pharisee. The thing that I find interesting is that while everyone is celebrating, the Pharisees are complaining. Did you pick up on that? Paul and Barnabas had just gone on this missionary journey. They'd shared the gospel with the Gentiles and all of these Gentiles, all these people outside the Jewish faith, outside of the Jewish nation, came to believe in Jesus and worship him and they received the Holy Spirit. And the the apostles are saying, this is an amazing ministry. Look at what God is doing in these people's lives. Look at how their lives are changing. But there is a group of folks who say, yeah, but... They're not changing enough. Or, yeah, but, you know, they're missing some of the most important things. Everyone is celebrating except for the Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees want, ultimately? They say, well, we want, we want these Gentiles to be circumcised. Now, the Bible is not G-rated, right? So circumcision, we got to talk about it for a minute. Something that happened to all of the males in Israel, like a part of their flesh was removed, and it was part of God's covenant with his people. And it was part of a way of identifying who God's covenant people were, because if you were ever wondering, well, are you a Jew or not, you can take off those clothes and you can find out right quick. Maybe a very strange sounding thing for us, but it was true nonetheless. And what the Pharisees are really saying is they're not really part of God's people. 
God doesn't really love them as children until they take on this sign of the covenant, until they are circumcised. Now, how do the believers, how do the apostles and Peter respond to all of this? Because let's be honest, there's a certain way in which the Pharisees' argument makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Like, is God really just going to save you like that? There's nothing you can do, you can contribute, you can bring to the table. Is that really how this works? Don't we, we, we have all of these different uh, uh, patterns in our Christian history where people said, no, faith is not enough. You need to add something onto faith. You have to work, you have to be good, you have to you know, uh, have some mark on you. You've got to do something, right? Especially in, around the 4th century AD, there was a man named Pelagius. And Pelagius said, you know, God has given us the power to be holy people. And if you are not pretty darn holy, then, you know, you, you're not in. Grace and faith, they're the things that, like, you run, if you're running a race, I saw a YouTube video this morning about a guy who ran a triathlon in this incredible pace. You know, he just beat the pants, beat the socks off of everybody in this triathlon. And it, Pelagius was kind of like, that's our job, is to beat the pants off of everyone to the triathlon. And then when we're finally, like, you know, half a kilometer from the end, God will pick us up and carry us the rest of the way. Our job is to get 95% of the way there. God will take us the last 5% or so. And, and there's something that appeals to us out of that, isn't there? Because you know what? If we can bring something to the table, then we can control something in our life and in our faith that we can't otherwise, right? If God's saying, you're part of my people just because I love you and just because you put my faith, you put your faith, in Jesus, which, by the way, God also is the one who gave you that faith in the first place. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And what? And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Isn't that incredible? God says, I'm going to do it all from beginning to end. Why does that make us uncomfortable and uneasy? Is there anyone you would trust with your most important and valuable and personal things, with the ultimate outcome of your life other than yourself? And naturally, the answer is no. Because that means we are totally out of our own control. If it's God's responsibility to get me from stage one to the final stage, then I have to count on him that he's going to do it all the way. Wouldn't it feel better if at least we can contribute a little bit? If at least we can go from like stage five, one to five out of 20 stages, you know, we, at least we could get ourselves 25% of the way there. It would feel better both because we'd feel like we were making progress and that was under our control, but it would also feel better in some ways because then we would feel like, well, God's seen how far I've gotten on my own. Surely he wants more to take me to the end than he did yesterday. See all this progress I've made, God? You're not going to let that be in vain, are you? And I think the Pharisees are proposing the same sort of idea. Are you saying we really have to rely on Jesus from beginning to end? You think there's nothing we can add, nothing we can contribute? Because that makes me pretty uncomfortable. I don't like that. I'm not 100% comfortable with that. Don't get me wrong, 
there are days where, you know, you have those days where you get up, and from the moment that you get up, nothing goes right. And a lot of it's your fault. Oh, I forgot that appointment. I slept through my alarm. You know, I, I, uh, I said the wrong thing to that person that I was talking to. You know, I was driving to work and I was late and so I was speeding and I got pulled over. And it's like, you know, all of these things, they just snowball, right? And on those days, it's like, God, I'm so glad that you take me from beginning to end because, man, today I can't do anything right. But on the days where I'm bringing something to, where I feel like I'm bringing something to the table, I kind of want to say, hey, God, you're watching today, right? <laughs> I'm glad you weren't watching yesterday when it all went so badly, but you're watching today, right? See how good I'm doing? Don't you love me a little bit better? Don't you like me a little bit more? Don't you want to you know, reward me with more progress in my life? Yeah, I, I think that the, the Pharisees' attitude is pretty understandable because I think it's a very human attitude. But notice what it does. So you say, well, you know, surely we don't need to trust on God to get us the whole way. Surely God's relying on us for at least a portion of the work. How does that change their attitude toward the people around them? Does it make them politer and kinder to them? Or does it make them more judgmental, less generous, and less ultimately like Jesus? I think clearly it has to be the latter, doesn't it? Remember that prayer of the Pharisee we used for our prayer of confession? Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men. Oh, gosh. Right? I thank you that I'm not a murderer or a rapist or even like this tax collector. Conveniently here for an example. But you notice what the Pharisee does? Then he starts talking about the things he does well. Thank you. And he's thanking God. And let's, let's assume for a moment that he's being genuine about this. I really thank you that I'm the kind of person who fasts twice a day. I really thank you. I'm the kind of person who gives generously. Thank you, I'm that sort of person. It's a little harder to argue with the Pharisee when he's saying that, right? Thank you that I'm not like this person. Well, yeah, I'd rather be like the Pharisee than the tax collector because the Pharisee's doing it right. What a strange thing. And yet it makes him utterly unlike Jesus because Jesus, when he sees people who are lost in sin, has compassion and wants to pull them out. And the Pharisee, when he sees people who are lost in sin, wants to step on them so they stand all the higher. And we say around here quite a bit, or at least I say around here quite a bit, God doesn't put people in the scripture so he can look at them and say, what fools so glad I'm not like that. Wouldn't that be the greatest irony of all? God, I'm so glad that you didn't make me like that Pharisee. God puts these people in scripture so that we will remember that we are tempted to be like them. Sometimes we're already like them. When we start to think about the people in our community, I mean, maybe it's just me, but sometimes is there a little bit of a hierarchy well, I'm so glad that person's a member of our community. But if we could just get rid of that neighbor, life would be a little bit better. How is that different from the Pharisee's attitude? While the disciples are celebrating, 
the Pharisee is saying, hold on a minute. Are we really sure we want these people? And you know, it was a hard question. Because the Jews, at this point, Christianity is majority a Jewish faith. It's considered a sect of Judaism. And all the Christians in Jerusalem, which is the the key church, right, the mother church of all the other churches, all of the Christians there, they're not used to being around Gentiles. They're uncomfortable being around Gentiles. Do you remember when when Jesus was crucified? It said that they, they took Jesus to Pilate, but they waited outside. They didn't go into Pilate's house, the the religious leaders and the rulers and the crowds, not even Jesus' disciples. None of them went into Pilate's house because if they did, they'd be unclean and they wouldn't be able to celebrate the Passover. So these people who are are debating in Jerusalem about what are we going to do about the Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised or not? They're people who are not comfortable with Gentiles. They're people of a different culture, people who until recently have belonged to a different faith. They are people, uh, the Gentiles are people to the Jews whom they needed to stay away from in order to really be all that God wanted them to be. And so this is a big question, and it would have been really hard for them. And I think we can find similar sorts of people in our lives. Uh, Recently, you know, our church uh, is uh, pretty clear about what we think about human sexuality and marriage. And it's not so that we can exclude people. Let's be really clear about this. It's not so we can exclude people. But our essential tenets for our denominations is you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. And human sexuality is intended for uh, between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And it doesn't belong in other places. Now, a week or two ago, someone showed up at our church for something, and they said, I am, they said to me, I am a lesbian, and I'm here with my partner. What do you think about all of that? What kind of Presbyterians are you? That was this person's question, because they knew we were Presbyterian. And I said, well, um, first of all, I'm really uncomfortable. (laughs) It's not the conversation I have every day. But secondly, we do hold to the traditional, what we call the traditional view of marriage, that it's between a man and a woman. We also hold to the fact that you would be welcome here. Because we don't expect people to come, like, already perfectly like Jesus. If that were true, we wouldn't need a church. We'd just be like Jesus everywhere we went. I'm expanding a little bit on what I said now, explaining the reasoning. But instead, we come together to meet Jesus. And Jesus starts to change and transform our lives when that happens. And we would love to do that with you. Now, is that answer going to make everyone happy? And of course, the answer is no. There's only so much any of us can do about that. Jesus said the gospel is offensive. Jesus said, people aren't going to like you. He actually put it more strongly. People will hate you because of me, Jesus said. Of course, our job is to make sure that they hate us because of Jesus and not because of me. Because <laughs> that's an easy thing to fall into. So that's the question. Is, is everybody welcome here? I have a pastor friend who wrote an article for Relevant Magazine a long time ago. And he recounted a similar sort of story where it was someone who was practicing something that Christians were known for opposing. And they said, would it be okay if I came to my church? And he said, 
in the abstract, right, in the grand scheme of things, yes, in, and I want you here. Would it be safe for you? The answer might be no, because we're still broken people here. And sometimes we struggle with people who are different than we are. I think that's a realistic answer for how life actually works in a lot of contexts. Think about the way we talk about people in the world around us. If, uh, you know, maybe it's regarding politics, maybe it's regarding religion, maybe it's a social issue, whatever it is, I just want you to think about someone you disagree with at the moment. Then I want you to think about all the conversations you have surrounding those issues. And I want you to ask, would my opponent feel that I was full of grace and love in all of those conversations? Does that make sense? Let's, you know, let's say that the issue is, uh, we'll choose something really safe here, right? Is it better to love the 49ers or the Seahawks? The Raiders, yeah. Substitute your favorite team here, okay? That's fine. Is it better to love one of those teams? And uh, sometimes when you're talking about, like, you start trash talking a bit, don't you? And it's in good fun, right? It's, it's sports. I hope that, you know, no one's living or dying by this. We know sometimes people do, and we shake our heads when that happens. But, you know, what if you're a bunch of Seahawks fans sitting around, and you're talking smack about the Niners, and, uh, you know, would a Niners fan show up and feel like they're welcome to be a part of that conversation? That's, that's all I'm asking. Now, now, take that and apply it to a, an issue of significance, right? Because we tend to get meaner about issues of significance, don't we? Because they're more important. And things like fear and anger enter into the equation as well. The way that we treat people when they are absent, would they be pleased to know about it? Or are we gossiping? Or are we holding hatred in our hearts? Or are we holding people to a standard that Jesus didn't hold us to? See, Jesus, remember he, he, when he's talking to the Pharisees, one of the things that he, he told them is he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. Right? On the outside, you look beautiful. And on the inside, you are full of every gross uncleanness we could think of. And the problem is if your inside's dirty. Remember Ray's message uh, for the kids the other day with the dirty cup. If the, inside of the, if the inside of the cup is dirty, it doesn't matter how clean the outside is. You're not taking a drink. And folks, the way we behave when other people aren't around is often revealing whether the inside of the cup is dirty or clean. Or whether it's just the outside of the cup that looks all right. I think that's what is being revealed from the Pharisees here is that really they're hard-hearted. Really, they say, become like me. Really, they're saying, I want to protect what I have instead of I want to reach the people that Jesus cares about. Now, the apostles and the elders met to consider the question. What are we going to do about this? And they talked a long time. It says in verse 7, after much discussion, because it was hard, these things, like, let's, give us a, let's give ourselves a little bit of slack in understanding that we are not going to get this right always, immediately. And sometimes getting it right will come at personal cost, which often means it will take time. 
Sometime later, uh, after much discussion, Peter got up and he said, you know what? You know what we really need to know? When we shared the gospel with the Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit. Case closed. Folks, people don't receive the Holy Spirit unless they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter's saying, that's, that's got to be the bar against which we're measuring everybody and everything. And how do, we, you know, how do we know then that people have the Holy Spirit? Because in Peter's case, like he showed up and he's preaching to Cornelius, this, this Gentile centurion, and uh, while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone and they started prophesying and they started praising God. Like, I mean, it was obvious. It wasn't like, you know, is this the Holy Spirit or is this something? Else? No, it was just absolutely clear. When when Paul and Barnabas went out on their missionary journeys, they were doing miracles. They're like, God wants to reach the Gentiles because he was displaying his power to them everywhere we went. So here, I think, is the first thing that we do. Okay, so is, is this person actually in touch with who God is? It's not primarily, do they look like me, which is often the standard that we use, but... Are they beginning to look more and more like Jesus? Is the power of the Holy Spirit operating in their lives? And then, of course, we always come back to Scripture. And we say, are they actually reflecting the truth of Scripture and the things that they're believing and saying? Remember, this whole service was designed very intentionally this morning. Remember, we started with Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That's it, Jesus. He said, this is as simple as I can make it. If you say Jesus is Lord and your life's reflecting that, maybe not perfectly because none of us do it left, none of us do it yet, but if your life is more and more reflecting Jesus, that's what Jesus said. He said, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by what comes out of their lives. You'll understand if the inside is clean based on what they start to reflect outward. Are they reflecting the compassion of Jesus Christ toward other people? Are they proving that they're forgiven by forgiving others? Those are the big things. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's public, isn't it? I don't, I don't think the idea is if you find a closet somewhere, you shut the door, you turn out the lights, you, know, you make sure nobody's home, and then you say, Jesus is Lord. That's not, it's not a magic phrase. Jesus is Lord. Oh, I'm a Christian. Neat. Is your life reflecting this? And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, where is our hope, folks? Oh, man. You know, this week, I was thinking about this so often in my own life. And I, a number of different things happened. And you know where one of the places I put my hope other than Jesus? It's in being right. It's in being right. And for me, that manifests in a number of different ways. But probably, at least lately, the biggest way it manifests for me is if I feel that I am wrong, I am devastated, and I'm ashamed, and I'm embarrassed. Folks, is there anyone in here who's never wrong? <laughs> You're never wrong? I, I can't think of anything right now to prove you wrong. 
but I am concerned about you. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's human, isn't it? It's human to be wrong. Because we're wrong not just in sinful ways, right? We're wrong in just human ways. You know, we argue about how tall Hugh Jackman is. And one of us is wrong, and, you know, maybe all of us are wrong. Sometimes that's the great thing. We think, like, well, between the two of us, we can figure it out. No, maybe not. Like, we can all be wrong all the time. Right? It is human to be wrong. Why am I so ashamed? Does anyone else feel like that? Like, I'm wrong, and I'm so ashamed. Anyone else experience that? Of course, you're ashamed. You won't raise your hand. So, (laughs) that's nonsense. I mean... I'm not saying, like, celebrate if you find out you're wrong. I'm not saying it's wonderful to find out that you're wrong. But why would we be ashamed? That's wrong. And now we're even more ashamed. It's this vicious cycle. Because my hope is in being right. Right? I'm okay as long as I am right all the time. As long as I'm the answer man. And, you know, sometimes the way we deal with that is no matter what, we're just going to stick to our guns, right? I am right. And it doesn't matter if I even start to believe I'm wrong. I'm going to still argue that I'm right because I'm too ashamed. I'm too ashamed to do something else. And sometimes it can be, yeah, you're right, I was wrong. And then we just go home and we're devastated and we're crushed. And there's nothing that we can do. And that's not finding our hope in Jesus. Because Jesus' whole point is, you were wrong. That's where it starts, right? The gospel. Jesus says, repent. That's the first message that he gives. Repent. It means you're wrong. He says, and believe and you will receive the kingdom. And you'll be right. Isn't that the most amazing thing? The quickest way to be right when you're wrong is to admit that you are wrong. I'll give you a minute to... Quickest, right, okay, there we go. Quickest way to be right when I'm wrong is to admit that I was wrong, and yet we're often so slow to go there because we've wrapped up our hope in it. Folks, where is our hope? To be a Christian, it's in Jesus, not in what we do, not in how right we are, not in the way we look, not in the way we feel. Don't we need to hear that in this culture? where authentic feelings are the only thing that are really true? No! Our feelings let us down all the time, not because they're bad, but because they can't bear the weight of our hope. Only Jesus can. Peter tells everybody, no, we saw the Holy Spirit come on these people. They have confessed that Jesus is their Lord. They have put their hope in Jesus, and it is transforming their lives. And then he says something amazing. He says, uh, he says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? He says, do you know what we learned from trying to live under the law for the last 1,500 years? We can't do it. Let's finally get the message and move on to Jesus. And let's give that same gift to the people surrounding us. What a relief it would be. Maybe you need the relief this morning of hearing that you on your own cannot do it right. Not enough. Not enough. This shouldn't, it's not news to us. Right? How many 
painful failures can we remember in our own lives? The list probably just goes on and on and on, except for Kelly, who's never been wrong. (laughs) Wouldn't it actually be liberating to finally just admit the truth? Isn't that the quickest way to be right? To say, I was wrong. Folks, in nine years here, I have been wrong so many times. I would love to take every time back. I'd love to make it right. And it's out of my power to do that. All I can do is be better going forward. And in the context of this community, even the people who aren't here today, that's the best I'm going to do with the help of the Holy Spirit. And if I need to give you my repentance and my forgiveness, I can't even get right all the things that I've done wrong. I can't even remember them all. I'd love to make them right today. That wasn't part of my sermon. That was for free. Where was I? (laughs) Peter points out the truth, and then James, who's the leader, uh, we think James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, He's actually referred to in non-biblical sources as well. We know he died a martyr uh, under a Jewish high priest who later lost the high priesthood for doing that to him, among other people. And James says, this is what God always planned and promised to do from the very beginning. And he cites Amos chapter 9. And there's a couple of things that are a little funky about his citation. He's citing it from the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. It's it's actually a little bit different in Hebrew. Uh, I can't solve all that for us this morning, but I think that he's right here. He says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's tent. Right? I'll restore the kingdom that was lost that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. And James says, the Gentiles are in. They don't have to become Jews. They don't have to keep the whole law of Moses. They're in because Jesus is enough and more than enough. And then he goes on and he says, but they still need to do X, Y, and Z. So let's, let's touch on this really quickly before we end the, the message. He says, instead, we should write to the, in my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who, turn, who are turning to God. Don't put the yoke on them that we weren't able to bear. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. James, uh, a lot of scholars think, and I, I think it's probably true, that James is citing Leviticus 17 to 18 here, which were the rules for Gentiles who wanted to live among the Jews, among Israel. And he's citing them not as a, this is a matter of salvation. He's citing them not as, this is a matter of being good before God. He's citing them as, this is a matter of how the heck do we get along with each other when we've been enemies for so long. Um, You know anyone who's like a militant vegetarian or vegan? 
Anyone here know someone like that? Anyone here, that person? You don't have to raise your hands. That's okay. So, But in any case, what happens when you run into one of those persons? Like if you go out with one of those people and you say, you know what I'd like today? I'd like a bacon cheeseburger. You're going to get the lecture, aren't you? Right? Oh, you're such a horrible person for, you know, it's, you know how they're raised. You know how environmentally destructive these things are. You know, folks, I just want to tell you at this moment in the unsanctified portions of my heart, I don't care. Meat is delicious. Let's move on. But... You know that if, you, if there is someone you know, who has some of those dietary beliefs, you don't go out and order the bacon cheeseburger. Like you don't t- go into Jerusalem and go up to some place and say, can you please give me a bacon cheeseburger because I want to violate kosher laws at least three ways in one meal today, right? That's just rude. James is saying, let's figure out how to get along with each other and not just offend each other because we are different. What do we give up to be in community together? Not because God is saying, I won't love you unless you do this, but because we're going to struggle to love each other unless we make some compromises. When I got married, now I have a permanent roommate, right? And uh, there are all sorts of adjustments that you have to make. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're married or you have a roommate, whatever. If, if you're living close to somebody, there are adjustments that if you want to keep the peace, you have to make. Do you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle of the tube or from the bottom of the tube? Because I'm telling you, that can ruin a marriage. <laughs> Maybe it shouldn't. <laughs> but, oh, man, when you're living that close together, those little things can be So James is saying, how are we going to live with each other? Well, stay away from idol worship Gentiles because their friends would constantly be inviting them to a pagan temple to celebrate one thing or another. And if they did that and then they came back to worship together with their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jesus, their Jewish brothers and sisters would have been enormously uncomfortable because they would have felt they were being made unclean because that's what their upbringing had conditioned them to think and believe. The goal isn't, by the way, that forever we remain, we have to continue doing these things and stepping on eggshells so that we won't ever bother anybody, but that we will grow together enough that our comfort will increase where these measures aren't necessary forever. But that's what's happening. And then as a result, this uh, sermon actually goes all the way through verse 35, even though we didn't read all the way to there. And the reason is because basically in verse 30, uh, from verses uh, about uh, 30 to 35, all that happens is everyone's going, yay, we're so happy, like everything's great. So, and that's true. That's, that's maybe something important to remember as well. When we make these sacrifices for each other, what ends up happening is real community. And it's good. 